0: Good morning everyone, Uh, if we can turn down our Bibles to Titus chapter 3 as we, uh, Martin's continuing the sermon series on Titus and um, uh, Titus chapter 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarrelling. To be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we stray slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating, by, hating one another. But when the goodness of love goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tych- Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Xenus the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Thanks, Luke. Uh, Good morning, everybody.
1: Uh, Mine is Martin, if you don't know me. I have a privilege to preach today. And thanks to the team for your testimony. What a privilege for us to hear the story. Praise God. We are in our last chapter of Titus. So how about we pray before we expand on the word of God? Lord, help us to see the beauty and goodness of your word. Help us to joyfully tremble at your word, knowing that you are a holy God, yet a loving Father. Would you grant us a maximum attention, retention, and transformation as we expand on your word? And oh Lord, we empower me with your spirit. Let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, my rock, my redeemer, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, the saved, are wretched like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I'm sure you know this song as a Christian, or if you're not a Christian. Well, the writer of this song was John Newton. He was born in 1725 in London, England. When he became 11 years old, he went out to the sea following the father's footsteps. And later on, he became a slave trader. He became a very outspoken atheist who tried to persuade others not to believe in God. He blasphemed God, was into gambling, and was heavy, he was heavy, into heavy drinking. According to his own testimony, John Newton sold about 20,000 slaves. 20,000. Well, his life was messy. It was just, just full of sin. But, but by God's amazing grace and mercy, he got saved. After his, con- after his conversion, his conviction against slavery grew year by year, and later on, he decided to become an Anglican pastor. And in 1769, he wrote a paper titled "Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade," which was a massive hit in England. On England, and he passed William Wilberforce, who was a leader of parliamentary campaign. John Newton had a huge impact on passing the Slave Trade Act in 1807. Not only that, he wrote many hymns that would benefit the church, including Amazing Grace. And he also wrote quite a few theological works, which are very much read today. You see, the grace of God and led him to godlikeness and drove him to use his life for good works. Well, this is what John Newton said about his Christian life. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. You see, the grace of God that was shown to John Newton was not in vain. It led him to Godlikeness through the transformation of his character and conviction and let him to use his life for the good of his people and for God's glory. This is what today's passage is about. How the gospel drives us to live sacrificially for our neighbors and for the glory of God. How the gospel not only saves, but also leads us to do good works. How the gospel and good works are not disconnected, you see? Yes, the gospel drives good works in our life. So again, I pray that God will grant us maximal attention, retention, and transformation as we look at God's word. Here are the three points of the sermon. Good works, good news, goodbye. Which is the greetings. Yeah. Now, the Paul gives the verse by saying, remind them. Isn't this interesting? Just think about it. Do you remember the sermon that you heard three weeks ago? Okay, let's be fair. Do you remember the sermon that you heard last week? Or how about the devotions you have done yesterday? Well, this is why the Bible is literally full of reminders. It shows how forgetful we are. So here is a reminder of last week's sermon. We have learned that people are to be transformed by the gospel in such a way that the world will see the beauty, goodness, joy, and truth in the gospel. Paul's last week's advice was more for household context. But this time, he's shifting the scene from household to the world. Now, imagine a change in scene in a movie. So Paul is basically changing the scene from the household context to the world. Paul tells Titus to remind the congregation in the island of Crete to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Well, here the rulers and authorities are referring to today's civil authorities. I think there are two things that Paul is trying to say in this verse. First, it is to the governing authority because it is God who instituted them. It is God who placed them. So we are called to be as obedient as possible to the governing authority. And the reason is that our obedience to the civil authorities will reflect our obedience to God. As the artist's first stated, we are being witness to the ultimate seed of cosmic authority. And I said as obedient as possible because we will have to disobey the governing authority if it demands us to do what God prohibits. For example, abortion law that kills many innocent lives because we are called to protect lives. Well, I would highly recommend, sorry, this uh, tiny little book uh, that I read, it's a. It's a really small. This book is about biblical view of relationship between the state and the church. And I think this is very relevant because the election is coming up and our culture is becoming more hostile to Christianity. Second, God is telling us to have our being in the world by paying taxes, working in our society, trying our best to promote good in our society, and interacting with the world in a very civilized manner, to be a witness to the gospel. And you may ask, how do we do that? First, Paul tells us to be ready, ready for every good work. Here the Greek word ready is used in in the gospels when referring to people being ready for Christ's return. So just imagine a soldier who is always ready to defend his country. Okay, when there's a sign of danger, the surgeon react instantly as they're always ready to do so. Or oh, imagine a race in Olympics where the runners are ready to run. As the announcer says, on your mark, ready, said go. So it is like we are always ready to do good things for our neighbors. We are so ready to serve the people around us. So, what are those good works? Paul gives us two answers, four answers, sorry. Two negative elements, two positive elements of good works. First, the negative. Paul tells us not to slander, not speak evil of people around us. Paul is telling us not to gossip about people and avoid unnecessary troubles and maintain peace. Now the positive is telling us to be gentle and humble. You know, as I was studying this part of Scripture, I was amazed how today's social media is in direct contrast to these qualities, isn't it? It is full of vile speech, saying things with the intention of dragging some people or groups down. There's no gentleness, no humility in expressing their viewpoints. And on top of that, I was thinking how different this is in the light of what the world tells us, what is good and what is moral. Almost 90% of people that I talk to in the streets when I share the gospel, they would say, You know, Martin, it is good to do things as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Well, if it makes you happy, it's good. So the word morality goes only as high as, It is okay, it is good, if I'm not hurting anyone. And frankly, this does not work because we are relational beings. So basically, our culture's morality and definition of good comes, from, comes down to self. Because it is saying, do good. Because that is how the society functions well. Because it makes me happy. You see, it is utterly self-centered driven. But my brothers and sisters, as a followers of Christ, we should be utterly different from this cultural tide and philosophy. We should be gospel-driven. We should always be ready to radically serve our neighbors and love our neighbors by not gossiping, avoiding unnecessary conflicts, and showing gentleness and respect in our conduct. God is calling us to deny ourselves and do good for others. Not just merely for the sake of others, but to do good for the sake of our neighbors including those who do not hold to our view of God, values, and interest. Well, Jesus told to love even our enemies. You're right, even the person that you don't get along with in your workplace or um, in your neighbors. But I have to say this though, we would do this without compromising the truth. As J.C. Ryle said, let us never be guilty of sacrificing any portion of truth on the altar of peace. Let us show obedience to the government, yet ready to disobey when it goes directly against the Bible. Let us show respect and gentleness to our neighbors, but have integrity to stand on the truth of the Bible. And have enough love to tell our neighbors the truth. Not because we hate them, but because we truly love them. By doing this, we will be doing true good works for our neighbor. True love and goodness should have the audacity to tell the truth and stand on the truth. Although it may cost us, let us be like Christ, full of grace, yet full of truth. And I would define good works in this manner. It is works that is driven by the gospel, love, Bible-centered humility, because God's word is the very standard of truth and goodness. We define what is good not according to what our culture or the word standard, what, what the word tells us but according to God's word. Now, can I ask you a question then? How about you? As you reflect on your your own life, are you making sure that you're not gossiping in your workplace? Are you living a life of being considerate, meek in your conduct? Well, are you displaying humility? Are you the person that people will come for help because they know that you're so ready to help? You know, like I mentioned last week, I tried to apply what I've learned to my life first. That's what I've learned in my college as a preacher, to obey it first. But again, I found it really hard, as my heart is so inclined to be self-centered. Those qualities are so unnatural to us in many ways. We need more than what the, what the Word tells us, that says, you got to do it, because this is the way society works better and it will make you happy at the end. We need more than mere challenge and doing good for the sake of the common good. We need, what we need for the good works is good news, which is the gospel. You see, the gospel reveals two aspects that motivates us today. First, the negative. The gospel is utterly honest about our nature of our sins and our failures. The more we grow in Jesus Christ, the sensitivity towards our sin grows as we gradually comprehend how holy and pure God is. And simultaneously, we tremble as we gradually realize the very depth of our sin. Just think about it. It is like when, you, when we look back on our childhood mistakes and disobedience to our parents, we realize how bad it was, like Nathan said. Now, however, this negative impact actually produces a positive outcome. It produces radical humility, thankfulness, and complete reliance on God. Because you realize that you are more sinful than you can ever imagine, yet God, save, God saved you despite who you are. Man, this will lead you to say, I'm indeed better than no one. Wow, without the gospel, I'll be doomed in my sin. Isn't this true? If you knew all my thoughts that I had just this week, I'll have no friends left. In this way, the roots of our arrogance and pride has no place in our hearts. This is why in verse 3, Paul is reminding people what kind of life they've lived before God saved them. First, He says they were being foolish and disobedient, which means lived a life of rebellion, but did not even care about the consequence of their actions like a fool. And they were led astray and deceived like a fool, which led them to be enslaved by the passions and pleasures of this world. Yes, spending their time desiring evil for people. This is what malice means. You guessed it right. This eventually destroys the relationship and leads us to hate one another. We could summarize this kind of life as Apostle John did in 1 John. Life that is filled with loss of the flesh, the loss of the eye, and pride of this life. This is the summary of worldly passion that is against God. I think we can truly resonate with this with with ourselves. Before Jesus found us, when we are dead in our sins, following the passions of our flesh and desires of our bodies without much thought and care. As I read this, uh, three words come into my mind. Hopelessness, helplessness, worthlessness. That's what we were before Christ found us. But, praise God, here comes the hopeful but in verse 4. and I, I love that. It says, but... When the goodness, goodness and the loving kindness of our Savior, God our Savior, appeared. He says that. Do you know that what this reminds me of? You know, in the Battle of Minaris in the Lord of the Rings, when the orcs almost took over the castle. I'm like, oh man, that's not happening. And suddenly, 6,000 riders of Rohirrim appeared to help. Man, I can still remember the goosebumps that I've got. I was filled with joy and hopefulness. Here comes the victory. When we are hopeless in our sin, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to save us. How good is that? We learned last week, disappearing refers to the coming of Christ in the book of Titus. That is right. Paul has the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in mind, you see. And what is the very source that caused this kind of salvation? Ready? God's goodness, loving kindness, his mercy. Well, this is the very heart of God for sinners like us. Yes, as Dane said, it is not our loveliness that wins his love. It is our unloveliness. I just love that. And it was out of his sheer love and grace. It's awesome. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul calls God the father of mercies. The very heart of God is to show mercy to such messy and sinful people like you and I. If your heart is hard, his mercies are tender. If your heart is dead, he has mercy to heal you. If you are sinful, he has mercy to sanctify you and cleanse you. This was a reflection of Thomas Goodwin on the mercies of God. you see the depth of God's mercy and love? I'm so glad that God's reason for saving us has nothing to do with something that we have done. Based on my performance, I can have hope. You see? That is why Paul says that it is not the works done by us, but according to His own mercy, He saves us. Just think about it, about the implication of this gospel. Because God did not have mercy and love for you when you were at your highest, God will not forsake you when you're at your lowest, as John Flavel said. I love that. As God did not save you when you had everything right, He will not forsake you when you have nothing to offer. You see? Knowing that God's saving you is not dependent upon you, but on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, and resurrection for our sins. Now, Paul tells us how the salvation came about and the role of the Holy Spirit in it. The washing, regeneration, and renewal. Now, I want you to imagine a heart transplant. Heart transplant taking place in the theater. And the surgeon's name is Holy Spirit. He takes the old heart that is dead in sin, that is always inclined to sin and rebellion, and replaces that heart with a new heart, that is alive, vibrant, spiritually awake, filled with a desire to live the way God wants us to live. Like Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six says, You see, He grants us not only the desire, but also the ability to live the life that He wants us to live leading us to do do good works that are driven by the gospel and love and humility. Indeed, if you're in Jesus Christ, you have experienced the washing of your sins and is born again. Yes, you are a new creation in Christ. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians, praise the Holy Spirit who who gave us new life through Jesus Christ. And we see God of Trinity working harmoniously for our salvation. Isn't it? Salvation came from the Father, through the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. I have one word for this. Amazing! Are there some of you who are thinking, Man, that sounds like a good news. I want to believe in it, but it's hard. You know, there was a father who brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus. And he just said, everything is possible who, to, to, one, to one who believes. And the father replies, very interestingly, I believe, help my own belief. So he was saying, I love how Tim Keller says, he's saying, I believe, but I don't really believe. I believe, I don't really believe, ah, please help me to believe. And when he said that, the boy was healed. You see, it is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the objective of your faith that saves you. Who is a faithful God. So today's a day you can throw yourself to God. Today's a day you can believe in Jesus Christ and says, help my unbelief and his grace will be upon you, my friends, and save you. Now in verse 7, Paul says we are justified by God's grace, which is similar to verse 5. Being justified forgiveness. So basically Paul is saying through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and being made right with God, we are adopted to God's family. Think about it. Think about it quite carefully. One day we will truly enjoy this full inheritance as an heir that is eternal life itself. What a hope we have in Christ. Now, Paul is commanding Titus to stress on this gospel, the sound doctrine. Why is that? So that people may devote themselves to good works. The end goal of having sound doctrine All biblical teaching is not sound doctrine in itself, but the angle of sound doctrine and biblical teaching is for us to see the beauty of Christ clearly. And as a result, we live a life that reflects the beauty and the goodness of Jesus Christ. I think learning a sound doctrine is like tuning a guitar. Well, as you know, I like guitars. Sometimes I love guitars. Think about it. Why would I tune my guitar before I play it? Why did I tune my guitar? Just to put it back in the case or just to put it on display? This is a stupid thing that I can do, right? It's useless if I do that. Because the end goal of tuning the guitar is to play the guitar and make a beautiful sound out of it, isn't it? I think this is the same for the sound doctrine. We should endeavor to learn the deep truth about the Bible with all our mind to tune our hearts And the end goal must be to gaze upon the goodness and the beauty of Christ, which will lead us to a life that reflects this sound doctrine. Now think about the other way, okay? If I just focus on living rightly and not care about sound doctrine, it is like playing a guitar really well without tuning it. Well, in the case, no matter how well I play, it is going to sound horrible. You see that? So I pray that our church will endeavor to study scripture very deeply, my friends. But at the same time, I pray those truths will impact our mind, will, heart, and passion. So that this doctrine will become our life and impact our community. Let's not compromise sound doctrine. Let's not compromise sound living. Let's have two together. As John Calvin said, doctrine is not an affair of the tongue, but of life. So let us balance the sound doctrine and sound living. Let us love the Lord with all our heart, but also with all our mind, as God commanded us. As you can see in verse 8, Paul wants Titus to stress on this gospel, the sound doctrine, because it is very beneficial and will lead to good works. Again, you see, the good works are the result of our salvation, not the cause. Let me ask you this question. What do you need the most before you are saved? Jesus. Right. How about, what do you need the most after you are saved? Jesus. Let us remind one another the gospel. What Jesus has done in our life, it is profitable and will be fruitful in our good works. Yeah. Now, surprisingly, in verse 8, Paul addresses false teacher's error. They stirred foolish controversies and arguments. They emphasized the importance of genealogies and quarrels about the law and all these four errors that are not compatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. These teachings are pointless, useless, and not beneficial. Paul warns Titus to have nothing to do with those people. If they do not repent after warning them once or twice, he said, have nothing to do with them. Because those people are sinful, and self condemn for the things they are doing. They're hurting the church. You see, pastors and elders are not only to teach Christ from harmful teachings and worldly ideas sneaking into the church. It is a big responsibility. We should respect and pray for them because they'll be accountable to God for how they had led his precious bride, the church. This is what Hebrews uh, Hebrews 13, 13 says. Finally, Paul says, Goodbye. With you? True. He greets the congregation through Titus in this manner. And for the last time, for Orgis, the people should learn to devote themselves to good works. And as you can see, it is all plural how he addresses the church. So we do this together as a church. There's no individualism here. We do this together. To one another. So, as your friend and as your brother, could I encourage you with these words. Let the gospel lead you to Godlikeness. Let the gospel transform us. Let the gospel drive us to good works. Yes, let the gospel enable us to say, I'm not what I ought to be. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let us pray. Father, we do praise you for your words. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And I ask the elders if I can have um, permission to ask the congregation to gather in a group of two or three, and we're going to pray maybe five or ten minutes together. The, the reason for this is we're going to pray to God, asking for God's help to really transform our lives through the gospel. God uses the means of prayer to do that. So how about we gather into two or three uh, and pray together with, with wholeheartedness. Um, yeah, so please feel free to gather into two three groups. And we're going to spend time praying for uh, five five minutes, maybe five, ten minutes, asking God that this gospel truth will transform your life.